Okay, so we've got uh, Jason Twill coming in from uh, Qatar. How you going, bros? <laughs> so you're in the Middle East on lockdown. I am in the Middle East on lockdown right now. We've yeah. had COVID-19 cases spike up. Yeah. And, uh, yep. We're just kind of st staying safe. Yep. And you're, you're sober, so you couldn't even have a drink if you wanted one. Correct, but I'm also in a dry country. There's yeah. not a lot of access to it either. <laughs> so, you know, well, the, you, you've, you've taken out one of the risk factors of lockdown right there. That's right. That's right. Pulling off the wagons, one of them. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Um, so we're going to get into, you know, uh, quite a bit of complexity stuff today. Um, you've been doing it for a long time, uh, various places all around the world, you know, coming up with just amazing uh, solutions and programs and interventions that are really leveraging systems thinking in interesting ways and, um, you know, some of the trickiest spots on the planet. Um, so, yeah, it's a real honor to be talking to you today. Uh, we're involved together initially in uh, Regenerative Songlines. Project A, um, which is something that you kicked off and then respectfully stepped back from. And the aunties are running with it now. If we had um, <laughs> we had Annie Ann on on uh, a couple of episodes ago. Um, yeah, yeah still about touch with Annie Ann. Yeah, her, her recent papers have been great. Yeah, she's pretty amazing. She's yeah. just I don't know when she sleeps. I hope I'm like that um, when I'm older. If I get gifted with a bit of energy, that'd be awesome. So anyway, yeah, what have you been doing with your energy the last five decades or so? Um, I'd say for the past 22 years, I've been living in the solution, man. I've been living in like the, you know, the positive change. And when I was 26 years old, I'm 45 now. Um, you know, I had a pretty profound inflection point and I kind of had some really curiosity and interest before that. Um, but I've been in like climate change, sustainability, systems change, economic change for a long, long time. Um, for better or for worse, some, some of it was successful. Some of it, I was being an idiot, <laughs> you know, ego, self-seeking kind of asshole. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I've learned a lot on that journey and primarily from the kind of family of thinkers and practitioners that have kind of molded my worldview over the last 22 years. Um, which I'm super grateful for, but yeah, know, I kind of grew up, I grew up East coast, United States, uh, bounced around like Philadelphia, Maryland, um, DC area, uh, New Jersey for a long time during my formative teenage years, um, grew up in a very Republican, you know, wall street dad kind of father like in, in family, um, who all voted for Trump. So that tells you a little bit about my family right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't even say I fell far from the tree. I just kind of like moved to a new yard and planted a new tree, pretty much. So how are they going um, now? Are they are they queuing on now? No, they're not queuing on. I mean, they're not as politically engaged as some of the wackos. Oh, All right, so they didn't. Uh, they mostly they didn't get pilled. But, but yeah, you're one of the lucky ones. It's a, a, another yeah. an, another um another risk factor of COVID is you you tend to get radicalized online a bit more. <laughs> That's right. Um, but I, you know, I, I kind of got, you know, from a systems thing, I, I saw, you know, I had a pretty tumultuous teenage 
you know, experience. I, I was kind of disenfranchised with kind of McMansion suburban sprawl around major cities in the U.S. and what I would say the monoculture status totem materialistic environment that I was kind of, you know, seeing. I, I, for some reason, something let me see something in a pattern in the society that I was growing up in that I didn't like a lot. And, um, you know, some of that led to teenage addiction and a lot of my peers because we didn't have a lot of other things to do. We had no sidewalks. We couldn't drive. Any, we, we had to drive anywhere. It wasn't like a walkable place. Mm. And I remember trying to like study this with some teachers in high school and write about it and um, trying to find like spiritual outlets to try and process it, what I was dealing with. I even remember sitting around, you know, my friend's room one night and we're all smoking pot. And uh, I just looked around. There was probably 10 of us in the room. And I looked around and every single one of our parents were divorced. And I'm like, what's going on? Like that's causing some of these patterns I'm seeing. And, you know, one of my, my saving grace back then was New York City. Um, I remember like I would just ditch where I was and spend a lot of time by myself in New York. Right. Um, and I used to imagine coming out of like the 7th Street, you know, path station to Christopher Street in the, in the West Village. And I'd be crossing some like invisible threshold into this another world of like tolerance and diversity and see language and different cultures and and that profoundly influenced me and it was around that time this for this audience um i'd be cru- i was cruising down like east a street and i probably was about 13 or 14 years old and i came across i was always shopping for like rock stars you know red hot chili pepper t-shirts or jane's addiction t-shirts whatever it was back then and I was shopping in t-shirts and I saw this one t-shirt that had like Chief Seattle, the statement like, um, um, the earth does not belong to us, we belong to the earth. And I'll never forget like that, like that mm. image of that shirt. And I reckon I bought the shirt, whether he, whether it's true he said that or not, that statement really stuck with me and just kind of just parked itself somewhere in my mind for a while, but I never ever forgot it. And it made so much sense to me. Um, well, we, we both of- uh, we both crossed over there because um, yeah, I actually saw a Jane's Addiction T-shirt and um, and went away from the chief at that stage. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Perry Farrell was my higher power yeah, for a while. Man. Man. They, they carried me through a lot of my, my dark years. <laughs> um, but then you know, like fast forward and. You know, I'm, you know, now I'm in trying to find a career, you know, you know, had a, you know, wasn't really, didn't have any purpose or meaning, was kind of floating through life, partying, having a time, doing what I do, primarily self-seeking, egotistical, whatever I was. Um, And a couple of things happened. I I lost um, a woman that I love, like my high school sweetheart and fiance was killed in a car accident and that kind of rocked my world. Mm. And it set me into an even darker place. Mm. Um, and I had to dig myself out of that dark place um, pretty pretty hard. And, uh, and I went and spent time, you know, away to clean up my life and do all these things. Um, and finally started, you know, getting on the right path. And this was like in 2001. Um, I'd fallen in love with architecture at that time, you know, started to get really interested in cities and, and you know, because of that connection I had when I was a kid. Um, and then got, you know, working for an architecture firm at this time, and I was in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Um, and so I, it, on 9-11, I was in the building and narrowly escaped from that oh. attack. Uh, narrowly escaped. 
And when I was at the time in a 12-step program, that's another time. I'll tell you that story in detail another time. But in the aftermath of that, I had a sense of resilience to processing going through that. I had gone through a ton of stuff to that date. I had just had, you know, imagine like a decade of, you know, more than a decade of addiction and what that does. And, uh, you know, so I was just processing that in a very healthy way through the 12-step program. I was doing my 90 and 90 and doing all this stuff. I was talking about it. My peers were not. And, you know, my colleagues that I had just become friends with were just in this darker place of like post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, anxiety, couldn't function. And I pulled a group of us together and created basically a 12-step program for 9-11 survivors. And mm -hmm. I saw the power of just being, you know, having being able to identify with someone processing something or a similar experience and how we can, you know, heal together as a group. Yeah. And because you can, to, you, know, you can do the 12 steps out of a book, but it doesn't help, eh? For anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's just putting them on a different path. Yeah, I mean, you like, could do it. Know, you, it doesn't help you, it, but it you have to actually be there with the group and feel right. that because that's where the healing is, eh? That's right. So we, we, you know, we'd sit at these cafes and talk about what we were thinking, what we were, you know, like the fear of being on the subway and blowing up, you know, subway blowing up, all these different things that we were processing, what we saw that day and experienced. And out of that, I met my wife. You know, I like to say, like, it's love from the ashes. And um, wow. we had a really amazing background in um, architecture and planning and art and preservation and stuff like that. Geez, they make, so, they make you know, Nicolas Cage movies about all the wrong parts of that story. 9 11, yeah. I tell you, that, that's the one I want to see. I want to see a movie about that. That's going to yeah. be the rom com. But my friend me. wrote an opera about us, actually. He, he wrote like an actual opera about oh, my wife and I. You have to come the link to yeah. that. That's mad. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you get. I noticed when I, when I got sober, my experience, like I was a super curious kid. Like I got into like classical music and dance and I was into like really interesting things and different things. But then like, you know, I went in this like paradox, you know, trajectory for a while, but then I got my, my, you know, myself back. And, um, you know, all of a sudden I was like super curious again at 26 with the emotional maturity of a 15 year old, you know, kind of like, hmm. And I just started diving into all these books and learning. And my wife, because of her background, was, was getting me all these books. And she gave me one by this guy named James Howard Kunstler mm. called The Rise and Decline of the American Man-Made Landscape. And I read that book and it was very, you know, from a late, it was very accessible from a non-technical person who hasn't studied cities or, you know. But that book crystallized for me what I was seeing and experiencing in high school mm. and how much the environment shapes our you know, mm. our social patterns, our attitudes, our beliefs, the fatherless suburbs, I call them because of the commute patterns and then divorce rates, it's, all these things are to make sense to me. It's funny. They like, they, they pretty much dropped a building on you in one of those cities. And that wasn't what sparked it. It, it was a right. book. It, wasn't. it was a one -on one basic book. It that's mad. Kind of showed me the evolution of like where, you know, the, of the built environment patterns I grew up in and what I was experiencing. And then there was like, you know, you know, uh, what's his name? Richard Putnam wrote Bowling Alone and all the, com the communal breakdown, all the social capital issues around that. And it's just all started making sense. And like that, that first book I read was like my purpose finding book. So I feel really, really lucky that like I, I was kind of had a purposeless life. And then all of a sudden that book kind of like, whoa, I know what I want to do with my life. I know what system I want to change.
right? Like I, I just found my purpose. And, and then coupling that with sobriety was like, I went after that with abandon. So I like went and got my master's degree, kicked the shit out of a graduate program, you know, top honors. But like, I, I almost got two degrees because as I was reading, you know, studying conventional real estate development finance, I was just like devouring books on natural capitalism, sustainability, ecological design, all these things. So I kind of came out of graduate school almost with a dual degree. But what I did was I would read a book. And if that book, that author, this is why I love hanging out with you, Matt, because your book's amazing. Um, impacted me. You know, I want to know you. Like, I want you. I want to be part of your world, and I want to, yeah. you know, be part of that network of, of your world. So good to be able to talk. So I started building people, relationships. Okay. With all this. So good yeah. to talk and like to just people you tell them how they're. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like you, you, you've impacted. You, you know, look about all the lives you've impacted with Santoc. Like crazy. Like I just was talking about Santoc with ten people yesterday here to learn how to use the knowledge of this place to you know change the way we think about cities and culture and place here. Um, That's mad. So it's just like you know that because of that network and because of that effort. When I like teach or mentor students now, I'm like, you're you know, your network is so important. It's like your safety net, right? So when you have your purpose and you're purpose driven in your career and you're trying to make, you know, be a change agent and influence those around you as best you can, it's not easy work. And like, I even created, you know, using that 12 step theory, I created a program called Ecoholics Anonymous when I was in Seattle. Nice. Because we were all struggling, you know, like 10, 15 years ago you know, trying to, to push sustainability on people. And that doesn't work. You have to like pull them mm. and help them find like a connection point. And we're all like, helping teach each other how to do that more effectively, how to communicate, how to make it attractive, how to frame things. Um, and in that journey, so now I'm in, you know, I left New York and then Seattle, which is an amazing place and much more connected to um, first peoples, right? There's more, language out there there's more symbolism there's more connection to like salmon and mm. and art and it wasn't really in new york um and i was very fortunate to become part of a group that started the international living future institute and we were like you know we were trying to kind of set a new benchmark beyond you know basic or surface green to really deep advanced regenerative thinking and, and deep green and I was hanging out with all these gurus who were mentoring me in regenerative design. Da, da, da. But in these conversations, they keep sending me books like, oh, you have to read this book. You have to read this book. Mm. And all these books are about like first nature wisdom. I'm like, oh, like I thought you guys were creating that. Dog. I'm like, no, no, no. They're like just basically channeling knowledge that they read, you know, that was captured from someone studying, you know, how a certain, you know, First Nations group or clan, and, you know, the Dakotas was managing crops and, you know, mm. the culture of birding and other things. And I was like, whoa. Um, so I started studying more and I finally found some connections to um, some tribal elders in the Northwest and started, you know, trying to, you know, build a, build a relationship of trust and, and get mentored a bit on that and really started to help, you know, me unlearn the way I was thinking about these things, the way I was thinking about sustainability and applying these things. Um, Cause I've been, I'm more in the conservative real estate finance development. So I'm dealing with banks and board members and really, you know, um, conservative investors that want their money back and profit. Um, so I, you know, I had to grow up in a career wise in that, and I had to figure out ways to communicate and bring people, 
you know, bridge these two worlds. And mm. I was shifting my worldview for a long time. Well, look, you, you did it in the right um, order. It's, but, it's, it's best and, and easiest yeah. to um, to learn that boardroom side first. You know, boardroom, marketplace, yeah, or all, all that kind of thing. It's better to um, to move into indigenous knowledge from that than try and do it back the other way. Because what, what yeah. I mean, you probably would know this now, but once you've experienced that other way, like, or if you're coming from that other way, it, it, it's very hard to have the discipline to, um, you know, to learn the the economics and etc. You know, because you just like, yeah, like coming like, into no, that like, system like, and it's just like, oh, stuff. This this is awful. It's just it feels no. awful after you after you know the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. My son and I were doing this homework assignment last night on Adam Smith and like mercantilism and like you know. Right classical economic theory and i was like i was like oh like well yeah but you need to put like negative externalities in there <laughs> like the teacher is going to ask you why you know that but like, tell him you're working with me and <laughs> i don't want you to learn the wrong way of thinking about it like adam smith needed um, to put that in there <laughs> yeah might have been a different way um you know i so at this point now i'm like you know in my 30s i'm hung, i'm hanging out with like the world's leading thinkers and disruptive sustainable sustainability and like we run the living future on conference and we're like the most progressive institute you know I, i've read tons of books you know i feel like top of my field um doing you know seattle's six years of this amazing success i was a global change advisor for paul allen you know seeing the tangible results of our work and change happen um but then i i, I also was still in America and still in this American place. And like, I got this, you know, interest to move abroad and Australia wasn't really on my radar, but it became on my radar because this opportunity came up and, you know, I had a, an opportunity to be like, you know, director of like the world change Institute for Paul Allen with unlimited money. Right. And like dream job. And I said, I turned it down because I wanted my kids to grow up outside of the United States. I wanted them to kind of not have an American centric view of the world. Mm. Uh, it was very, um, it was a navel gazing mentality of like mm. we're the best country in the world. I feel like their, their experience growing up in America would have been limited, even in a progressive city like Seattle. Mm. So somehow I managed to get a, a you know relatively good job at Lemley's, um, big corporation. I'm not going to talk anything bad about them because they do good work as best they can within the system that they're in. But the the beauty of our journey in Australia is when I met Chels, mm. and you know I've been reading all these books and studying, and you know my wife emailed me one day. She's like, oh hey, this is right up your alley. And then Charles was doing a talk at the at the National Museum. And say, say who she is. Charles Marshall is a Aboriginal systems ecologist. He's a Gumbanger woman, um, northern New South Wales, near Valla Beach. Her ancestral home is in Balanella. Um, her totem is sea bass. Her mom's totem is dolphin. Her clan's totem is the ocean. And she's like an, an amazing sister. She's Majinda, and I'm her gagu. Um, we have a call tomorrow morning and she's, um, she's been the light of my life for many years now and, um, like spiritual sister. So I went, this is a big, this is like another turning point in my life, right? Mm. I get teary eyed about it. Cause you know, I've, I've talked, you know, about this before. And, um, so I, you know, my wife sends me this link to this talk that Charles was doing and it's like seeing country, seeing land, like 
I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like totally up my alley. Like, I want to meet this woman. And even before the talk, I found her email, emailed her and said, hey, introduce myself. Like, I've been really trying to learn and study indigenous knowledge. I've been trying to make a connection to country here. I haven't really made one. I've been here about almost a year now. Um, I'd love to meet with you after your talk and have a coffee. And she was like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> um, like, I show up. I sit, like, at the second row, like a nerd. I'm, like, little did I know I'm sitting in front of, like, her girlfriend and, like, her daughter and, and um, her, her PhD professor, PhD advisor at ANU. Um, then I started striking up a conversation with her advisor, and we hit it off. But then I met her briefly. And, you know, long story short, we made a connection to one another. Um, and I, at that time, I got invited to work on this really incredible project that Cyro was going to do outside of Canberra, like a really transformational, like world leading new community, like disrupting everything it can. And I said, well, if we're going to do that, we can't do it from a white Western or, you know, like way of thinking. We need to have a paradigm shift for this team. And I knew Chels had this knowledge to share, this gift to you know, share with this team. So we invited Chels to be on the team. Um, and it wasn't until like we had traveled to Canberra, we're in a cafe, like we were just getting to know each other. And we had a coffee um, in this in one morning before our workshop. And we just connected and we just cried and, and held each other in, in our arms. And that's when like, you know, we, we had like a soul connection. Mm. And ever since then, we've been working together. Um, and it was just, you know, I, I saw I had this role of just kind of opening a door for that conversation to happen with the, the clients and, and audience I had as a practitioner on urban transformation or, or regenerative community making, whatever it might be, um, just to put her, just get Chels in the room and then like sit, shut, the, shut the F up and sit back and she would just do her talk and like completely transform the mindset of a design team and the client mm. to like, they're like, whoa, we never like would even think about that stuff or see the land from those, those that, that level of perspective. Um, and there was just something there and we started to work on a, you know, a, a business plan around that to help, you know, developers and designers really think very differently about how they approach their, their design process and thinking about doing development in communities. But for me to be able to do that, I had to learn. So I, you know, spent days and days and days and hours and hours and weeks and weeks and weeks just learning questioning you know like where there was a bit of reciprocity because i was teaching chels what i was what i had learned as a white dude you know on my journey to learn about regenerative design and how it changed the way i think but there was so much unlearning i had to do to really get deeper at this and like the origin of these these ways of thinking and, and knowing and um so I, what i tell her is like i got kicked back to kindergarten like when i was saying i was as advanced as i thought i was and how knowledgeable I was and valuable I could be to industry or government. When I started learning from Chels and being adopted by her clan, like I got, I'm like kindergarten. I'm still like, maybe I'm in like third grade now, maybe. Mm. Right. So it's just like, and, and I'm still seeking out all that knowledge. I'm like reading the biggest state on earth, reading Sand Talk, um, you know, reading, you know, like tech, tech and all these, like, there's like, it's, it's such an important dimension to world change or, mm. you know, shifting human consciousness, right? Like mm. we talk about climate change so much and that's just basically pointing out a symptom and not reflecting back on why it exists, which is why, you know, majority of, you know, the Western world thinks 
the challenges is, you know, current state of human cognition for most of the population of the world. So I always say it's human change, not climate change. Yeah. And I feel like so much of that is really shifting human consciousness and leveraging, you know, thousands and 50,000, 100,000 years of accrued wisdom uh, of people that have lived on this earth mm. in the most sustainable manner possible, regenerative manner possible. And uh, I started learning about columbusing right like biophilia and biomimicry and regenerative are basically white people's interpretation of indigenous ways of thinking about certain things and like mm. you know where origins did this stuff come from and that's kind of what chels and i have been working on in her phd um so that, you know, i just feel like absolutely grateful that you know my life journey has allowed me to kind of stumble into that world and just be profoundly changed by it so like now like take my seven years of you know being in that you know that gift that i had in australia hanging out with aboriginal and in aotearoa with maori now i'm in this new land right in this new continent as a visitor right i know i can't come in here with my expat western mind and start applying things it's like my job and responsibility to really learn the origins of this place, the thinking of this place, um, going way back. So my first conversations with the archaeologists that were studying the origins of Doha, mm. the culture, the people, the traditional practices, um, traditional building practices, um, food, ocean. And um, the cool thing about here is that the indigenous people run the country. But what I see is that they've been colonized from a whole different way, right? You just, when I look across the landscape here, it's like a Western... Yeah. Billboard urbanisms, skyscrapers going up and like, hmm, has no connection to country, place, or culture. Um, so there's this the, interesting the will do that to you. It does do that, right? And the, and there's also the weight of expatriatism here. Like the though they are in charge, there's only three hundred thousand cuttery here out of two point seven million people. So there's a lot of expat thinking in the room, so to speak. Mm. Um, I'm trying to say like you need to kind of put a little bit of, not a firewall, but like really make sure you're leading from your first principles of your knowledge and culture first. Mm. So I don't want to come in here, even use the word sustainability. You know, what's an Arabic term that expresses that, you know, and how do we start to teach children their ancestral wisdom from this land, you know, on the elders. So yesterday I was on a call with the exhibits team at Qatar museums. Cause then I, I go to the national museum. One, that's an amazing, incredible museum. Um, it's, it's shaped like a desert rose. So Jean Nivelle designed a museum based on this iconic, you know, rock formation that happens in Qatar. But it's amazing to go through a museum where the, the own people of this country curated their own story. It's not told in some British museum or U.S. museum. Um, and there's all these oral histories of these elders about how they've lived in the desert successfully and sustainably and created an economy around it. And, the migration between winter and summer into the desert into the ocean and how their connection to the ocean is so important. So that knowledge is here. It's just not laid laced into the everyday mm. Mm. life or thinking about the, the development of the country in a different trajectory. Um, so just trying to crack that conversation open um, and uh, and making sure that I'm in service to the culture and needs of country people. Like that was what I learned working in Australia um, and how I can be, you know, used to that with my experience. So that's where I'm at. That's where I am today, man. Mm. <laughs> and you profoundly influenced me. So I'm pretty stoked. I mean, like you, you captured and, and like, 
I love that you got funding for the Institute. I love that you're having all this amazing success from the book. Like the world needs to hear your voice. And it's like, I'm so, so excited for you. <laughs> like it's such an important line in human history, right? Like you're it's helping. It's nice, Bruce, but my voice doesn't yeah. need the world. <laughs> it does, man, it does. Like people need to hear more of this. It's like- uh, No, I'm just saying like, all right, you might say the world yeah. needs my voice, but my voice doesn't need the world. Got, oh, your voice is in the world. With, yeah, I, got, I, hear I got babies to yeah, raise sure. here. I haven't got time to. <laughs> I'm just being silly. Yeah. Hey, so you you really um you really sort of it, it, there is a firewall really in a way. It's something that people can see the history of a place. They can see the story. They can learn the language. They can experience. They can form relationships. They can even marry in. Um, but then not see the connection between that and the work they might do in that place or yeah. what they might make or build or design, you know, and you're not truly, I mean, I don't know, it's something we do. We, we have our, our scholarship and our work and all this sort of thing. There's this kind of Protestant firewall between that and the language of the land, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. So even if we're feeling it, when we're not expressing it in the most important part of our lives that are having the, the biggest impact, but um, but you've cracked that, and and it's kind of magic, isn't it, when it starts working? But frustrating so to try and to try and pass that on to other people. That shift, what it yeah. takes to make that shift. It hasn't made you less successful. It hasn't made you earn any less. It hasn't diminished you in any way. You haven't lost your personality. You haven't lost your autonomy. <laughs> you haven't been swallowed by a hive mind or bloody being forced to what semi-naked wearing skins over a fire or something. It's um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you you found your way back. You found your way, way back, back, but it's um again exciting because of the twelve step thing. It's like to me, it's a daily reprieve. It's something I have to practice every day. I mean, like. I have deep-seated program brain from like growing up in Western education, East, you know, that, that's that journey until, you know, the inflection point at 26 is a different life path, right? And, and it, it's, it coincides with 20 years of sobriety, right? And like, I know that I have, and there's, a, there's actually really interesting, a lot of similarity between the 12 step program. So the same psychologist at Harvard who Bill Wilson used to like create the 12 steps is the same guy who influenced a guy named Charlie Cronin, which led to the origins of like the regenerative development movement for some of the, you know, the mm -hmm. elders that are trained up in that. So when, I, when I'm getting trained in that, I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm in an AA meeting the way they're talking about this stuff. So there's, there's some interesting similarities, but it's just a framework for, for change. Yeah. Right? And it's not something that like I read a book and I'm done. That's like, I have to practice this every day. And it's like, it's my responsibility. It's not someone else's responsibility. Mm -hmm. I have to take accountability for how I change my attitude and thinking every single day to come at from, you know, to, to work or practice from that place. And then that, like, I say, because of that t-shirt I read when I was like 13, my statement in, and has been my little mini, you know, split second ritual in the morning, my feet hit the ground. I say, you know, I belong to the earth and I'm in service to life. That's the way I center myself in the morning, and that's how I try to engage my wife and kids and those around me. And you know, I, that's not—I I falter from that mentality all the time. <laughs> but 
but I try to put myself back on it every day, you know, make sure where I'm coming from when I'm trying to work with others and, 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 and being service to systemic change around me. That's and all. I, I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to try that, especially with the house relationships, you know, I would get all centered and peaceful in the morning, be in service to the earth and that might stop me from yelling at my kids. Oh, I shouted at everybody so loud yeah. yesterday. Um, yeah, someone threw like a phone across the room and it bloody, it hit my foot right on this bone that had just finished healing and it cracked it again. Jeez, I, I did, uh, I did shout for a minute. <laughs> I had to leave, I had to leave the house and limp up and down the street a few times to get my, uh, get myself under control. Yeah. But hey, maybe if I got up in the morning and uh, planted myself first, I'd, 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 I'd be a, a bit more of a calm center of things. It's, it's tough to know this knowledge and this way, you know, what we should be teaching our kids and then seeing my teenage boys and being seeing what they're getting taught mm. without having a totem, you know, totemic relationship with something outside of themselves. Like I, I was watching, you know, how Chell's daughter, Lacey is growing up and like, I would send the boys up to Villanova all the time to like just be in country and go to these spiritual yeah. pools in the woods and we'd like hang out with Chels just to be around that, like a smoking ceremony to see that and understand it. Mm. Um, but they were in this kind of uber elitist school there and they're just disconnected from that. And I can mm -hmm. see like knowledge I have and trying to be a mentor to them or teaching them. It's really freaking hard. Look, I, I think like, it's, um, you know, it's like what we were saying before that I was saying you did things in the right you the right way uh starting off in the mm -hmm. system and then coming across and learning the other way um because I, I have two babies now but i also have two grown kids yeah and and um this time around i'll do it different you know because my two grown kids you know they're like 22 and 20 or something like uh old now like they're, they're under their own steam and out in the world um but i did it the other way around with them they, they were raised you know in the bush <laughs> you know um and that yeah they didn't experience the city thing uh, to and then when they were teenagers we moved to cairns and they had that uh, suddenly they had town life and yeah. and it broke both of them you know <laughs> i think it's it's oh, an yeah. easier transition to to grow up in the damaged culture and then move into the the good one <laughs> the good way of life uh, than it is to try and have to do it the other way around. It really damaged them. Both of them experienced about five years of depression and, and all the rest. Um, and it's, it's only been recently in the last year or so that they've come out from that. Um, very, really hard time adjusting and, and trying to figure out how to be a human being in the world. Yeah, poor things. So yeah, no, that's it. I'm these, <laughs> these bubs now, they'll be, um, They'll be fully domesticated and broken and twisted and warped and mutated and tortured by this society <clears throat> first. <laughs> then they can yeah. go. Then they can go. <laughs> we'll go back up home. So yeah, I've, I think I've got a time limit of I think it's three or four years before we uh, head back up home. So these bubs can get broken first, and then we can take them home and fix them. And nice. at least you know when they have to cross <laughs> back across it it won't it won't hurt as much when they have to um, yeah, the problems into the marketplace 
Because that market yeah. marketplace is a horrible place to be, I got to tell you. But it's the only place where you can get your food, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's an interesting time in human history, man. <laughs> yeah. So you right. you went a completely different way from um, architects for nine eleven. <laughs> Coming out of that, you pursued a a different line of inquiry. I did. I mean, you know, what's great is that like when I when I mentor like young, like my brothers are like twenty two, and I'm helping them kind of help find like to find a career. But I've I've always given because people like yourself and others have kind of given time and and, and wisdom to me over my life. I, I I'm just like a vessel. Like I just pass that through to other people and like really try and help inspire next generation. Mm. So I'm really inspired and hopeful. You know, like when I go and teach, you know high school or, or college or, you know, graduate school kids, they're already so much farther than I was at that age. Like I had to go read all these books. Now this is like core to the education program, right? Like mm. it's in, like they're learning about climate change in, in elementary mm. school. Um, and they're just more ambitious, you know, more active in the conversation now. Yeah. I, I see this kind of generational shift happening Greta Thunberg, but like, you know, like a million others. Um, and importantly, there's a ton of indigenous voices in that generation, which is amazing. Mm. I'm really, really grateful that the Black Lives Matter movement has kind of also lifted up the whole First Peoples indigenous rights movement in, in the U.S. Because that's just, you know, it's not talked about like it is in other countries like Canada, mm. Australia, New Zealand. It's just kind of put under the carpet a bit, you know, and um, it's awesome that like I'm I'm so excited that the Minister of the Interior for the U.S. is a First Nations woman, right? Like, freaking awesome for first time history. Yeah, it's huge. By all means, like, it's, it's huge. Um, it's huge. And like, you know, and and I can see like even friends I was talking to in Seattle are doing all the stuff with the tribes, and they're getting they're learning and like and it's all, they're learning how to work with tribes. Like I, I pointed my you know my buddy yesterday. I was like, oh, you got to read this amazing book called Decolonizing Solidarity. Uh, you have to learn or you have to work with, you know, being service to indigenous rights. Like, don't fuck it up, man. Like, don't go in there thinking you're going to save people. Like, you need to go in there as a student and you need to be service to that. Like, so, um, so that we, we, a lot of us trained under that book. So I, I'm really grateful for Claire for writing that book because it was amazing. She, like, taught me a lot about how I, because I'm, I'm always a little apprehensive, you know. Mm. Um, Charles's guidance in that book and, and, and many others have kind of mentored me and kind of, can, you know, you know, be, you know, define a role in, in how it can be in service. Hmm. Um, yeah, Out of that beginning collaboration with these minds, you, you, you sort of managed to, um, I, I don't want to say that you've made it or grown it or constructed it, but you've, you've allowed for the emergence of a framework uh, of a process. Um, that is a kind of a, uh, a mediation, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a thing that, that can be taught um, to people sort of as a, you know, a transition, a transitional way of coming across into, you know, being into place. And that's, um, that's a huge thing to come out of that, that interface of the different parts yeah. of your life. So what, what's the basic anatomy of that, that uh, the, the process that you you're holding them. Uh, communication. So like, I feel like I can, I'm a bridge, right? Like I can translate because I've, I've kind of, 
you know, I'm still very novice at like the indigenous knowledge system space, but I, I can translate that into a contemporary vernacular to different audiences to kind of connect them to that and understand the value of it is one. Um, but the other one is just knowing it's not about me. I mean, like the, the beauty of like a 12 step program is it really helps you look at honing a healthy ego, right? Not like, mm. not the self ego, like driven, mm. um, but focused and service driven, you know, like the, the song line is one, right? Like I knew I had this opportunity because um, I was work, working with the Commonwealth and we're doing this, you know, national road mapping of different countries to kind of look at transition, you know, and because of the experience I had with, with Aboriginal people, I knew that it's not, I'm not, it's not for me to lead. It's for me to maybe just help set something up that it's an Aboriginal led process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a way that potentially decolonizes some of the bigger system issues in, in Australia. So when we first created that, I, I strategically sought out you guys and Victor and Anne, like people that I was seeing in the media that were like, you know, you're rising with your book. And Victor was like all over the news because of, you know, his, his you know, mosaic, you know, cool burn culture, what he was mm -hmm. learning and teaching. It's Victor Stephenson. Yeah. Victor yeah, Stephenson, the author of, uh, fire country he's from up and um, he's amazing and then chills and then anti-man and i'm just like okay like okay can't i can't just put together a bunch of white friends who are working with regenerative design to do this like it had to be some significant indigenous thinkers in australia to kind of help that and just and figure out a way that they trust us mm. right what, what i like about regenerative is it's like people that have gone through regenerative practice and training it's a closer dialogue and language to the way you would think. And it just, it just changes the dynamic of how we can communicate. And mm -hmm. many times when we're talking about regenerative and we're explaining it from our Western trained minds, yeah, it's like, Oh, you're kind of thinking like we do. That's kind of like, but then you know, Charles just taught me like the, you know, the, the deeper lineage of that. Um, so that's just, you know, putting in place a platform, but then stepping away from it. Yeah. Like, the world needs less fucking white dudes yep. dealing with that. <laughs> well, saying. it's 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 working. I I think briefly after you stepped away, there was a there was a period of of you know, right? We're going to make a mission statement. We're going to, you know what I mean? Uh, this will be the secretary. Yeah. This will be the treasurer. We're going to and I got all organizey there for a minute, and then they're like, ah, oh, why nobody's coming? <laughs> um. Yeah, the one thing, I, and it's also see, the you can see that they turned things around then and just went, oh yeah, no, that's the wrong way, <laughs> the wrong way to go, and then they they really quickly got back on track again. Bless them, and um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually thing. So I, I've agreed to be on the um, thing, uh, the Indigenous Steering Committee for that now too, which is um, it's a huge honor because I'm there with like, you know, Anne Pauline and Mary Graham. No, Mary oh, cool. Graham's up in there now too. She's loving it. It's amazing. Mm. But then the other, like, well, I'll call the custodians, like Louise, um, Michelle Maloney, mm. Dom, and Auntie Anne and Chels, like, well, one, it's matriarchal, but way before I left, but it's in, which I knew was really important. But all of them have been deeply trained to not, to know not to try and lead or push anything, right? That, like, I trust, you know, like, they, they would understand. Auntie Anne's calls it call the shots, right? Like, 
and they got that right away. They're like, no, we can't have a meeting. We can't make a decision. Auntie Anne needs to be, you know, sign off. Yeah. So that was that was important. And then I knew I could leave. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, but that's good. I mean, I called up with Louise yesterday, and she said there's been a couple meetings, which is good. And that there was some kind of he, exactly what you said. There was some. Um, but it's good. And yeah, I think dro that, dropped off for a bit while they were getting all organized. They were probably under pressure to produce all the documents or something um, yeah. to appear legitimate. But, um, you know, that, that, that's how they always get you. They, they trick you yeah. into these uh, hierarchies. It's, um, it's terrible. You know, once they get you to an admin, um, you know, unless you end up with a, your own internal bureaucracy that you're pretty much stuffed. Yeah. But look, the, um, the big. I was, I was, I was, I was interested to know about what, what is your process? Um, what is your process for bringing people, um, you know, through this firewall? So, you know, obviously you've got a, something that you put together uh, with Charles. It's like, uh, yeah, I don't know how much of that you can share in terms of, um, you know, specifically um, how it works. Like where are they from a science perspective, it's more about like the psychology of climate change communications. That's where I kind of where I started to be more effective, right? So I studied under some really amazing people at Columbia, and at the time, you know, this was like in 2005 to 2010, we were doing all this work on climate mind and behavior, and looking at the, the neurobehavioral economics and the behavioral dimensions of climate change, and really what are we doing wrong that doesn't motivate people towards this topic or, or enable people to make change and not just like put a light bulb in and drive a Prius, like systemic change. Mm. Um, and there was this amalgamation of like journalists, psychologists, environmentalists, like coming together and psychologists to come kind of look at this way of communicating that really spoke to both hemispheres of the brain, right? That, it's the analytical storage. It's like, it's what I found out later when I started reading, um, there was a paper on being nature's mind, indigenous ways of knowing, and, you know, this is kind of fusion of Western science and indigenous knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this blend of, you know, the analytical and experiential, the storytelling yeah. of the data, you know, and how yeah, do you blend those together as a bridging framework to help people understand because um, the story is more powerful and that's why there's such a long lineage of, you know, of that knowledge in, in first people's cultures. Um, so that was, that was a turning point for me to be a more effective change agent. What I, what I would do is I would, couldn't just go into a room and, and like with 30 people and go boom, 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 boom. It, it was more personal connection with people. So I started taking people out of the office and having a coffee with them and I'd be vulnerable, right? I'd share teeny pit piece of my story and like why either I'm passionate or I care about this topic. Right. And in a, in a more informal setting, those people I was communicating with would open up about, you know, their life a bit, like a teeny bit, right. We'd make a connection point. We'd find a common denominator and they'd find a connection to that topic of sustainability, whatever it is. And then they'd grasp that and they'd see something around their, their role in our organization around doing something, either technology, either governance, either something, whatever it was. And then like really amazing change happened. And I wasn't driving it. I was just there like to make a connection with somebody and open up someone's mind to see something differently and, and it worked. And then they would just run it through. And then all of a sudden there's all these amazing change agents around. 
Um, so why not connect you with skipped over the bit again with with how you open yeah. up their mind, get them to see something differently. Yeah, that's, that's oh, I mean, the interesting just, yeah. part. Like like you know, yeah, you've got all that fertile ground. You're doing things um differently. You're establishing that personal connection. Everybody got a trick for that. But Look, framing. What's your trick, I do, I what's your trick for how you you open their eyes see see things differently? I frame it, you know, like I, you know, I tell a little, I, I tell a little bit of my story and then how I've had to kind of really unlearn and, and see it. And I have like a, a way of framing the issue um, to, to go to expand their understanding, right? They might be at like recycling, you know, and I'm like, you know, I try to get like the planetary right. consciousness. So but, you're you know, allowing like, them to have some kind of contextual reason yeah, going yeah. on. All right. So yeah, they're, yeah. yeah. So they're doing. So you're bumping yes, them, like very yeah. gently and very compassionately, bumping them out of um, the reductionism into a more contextual kind of logic, um, where they're so able to start to see the externalities. You know. Exactly. exactly. So it's like, oh, we'll, we'll only buy these shoes because when we buy these shoes, you know, the shoe manufacturers will plant two trees, and so they're carbon yeah. neutral shoes, and we're going to save the world. That's you know, right. That's but right. Nah, you know, it's straight away. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not buying. What what trees? What trees they're planting and where? Where are they planting them? <laughs> and what other exactly. things are they planting with them? And is that tree supposed to be there? Is it still going to be there in ten years? Is it native species? Like, a, <laughs> as you know, Victor Stephenson says, no, 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 don't plant trees. You you just burn burn the country. And when yeah. you start burning the country properly, then the country you know feels that we'll and it, it will put its own bloody trees where it wants them thank you very much <laughs> but the idea uh have you ever done that farm forestry or even worse the regen the regen planting back in the 90s i remember that and you'd you'd, you'd plan out like three thousand bloody messmate <laughs> eucalypts you know all in one big plot and they're all in rows but then the idea is that um you know when they all get get up to a certain height then you're gonna you're gonna thin all that out you're gonna cut the the littler ones and then sell that for logs and that's what's going to pay for the fencing to keep the wallabies out <laughs> you know and then um yeah the regenerative and agriculture then that's, uh, and then it gets up more and then you can harvest x amount and then by the time you finish doing that you know you've got um a few big trees a lot of big trees that are evenly spaced out but no longer in rows and you have a sense that that's where those trees are supposed to be but um yeah you you haven't done that as a dominant species plant in the place where it's supposed to be you know um and it hasn't you know the ground hasn't selected which seeds it's going to grow up yet it hasn't selected that you've gone along you know with a post hole digger and 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 sho shove those trees in there according to your algorithm and it's um and it doesn't work it doesn't work but hey i got my carbon neutral shoes so everything's fine so you've uh that's how i bring people in like with a slap like that <laughs> and yeah. um and uh, like quite often but i think i probably would catch more flies with honey like you're doing because you're sitting down having a cup of coffee and then gradually expanding their awareness out into the context around them until they're able to see the externalities of their interventions. Correct. 
but even but there's also a framing technique I've used. Um, and 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 I, and I, I always like if you if you if you see my lectures on a more formal technical way of doing this in front of a larger audience, I spend a lot of time on the economy. And like we're all part of this broken system. No matter how hard we're doing X, Y, and Z, we're still stuck in this system that doesn't recognize living systems and natural capital and like you know terminology that's still Western, but it's a, at least it's kind of transitioning us to a different way of thinking about you know the earth and, and our role in it. Like I, I did a talk for like 30 people yesterday, and you know just frame it and kind of you know I start with a you know a picture of the earth and I say just reflect reflect for a minute on the fragility of life on our planet. Right, we don't know any other place that has this, and that we're you know in the Goldilocks zone. So I take them like really big, like an image of like you know solar system. I'm like we're super lucky that we're just this far from the sun. And the conditions are conducive to enable life on our planet. And we're messing that's, with that. Right? It's practically a trope at this stage, though. It's, um, <laughs> you know, it's practically a trope at this stage. But so how are you saying it? And what are you doing that's, um, where that's having an impact on people? Because well, when, I bring it down, when I bring it down, I bring it down to their country and their way of living and their culture. And I said, because of the way you guys are living and because of it all, you're actually, you know, you're outside the boundaries of like your biological capacity. You know, I use terminology that simpl I simplify it depending on the audience. So I make it specific to this country. But then I, I frame it as like the, the most amazing opportunity in human history to change the world, right? And like you're sitting here, the like cutters in last place, right? So most people don't know how, like, it's 37 metric tons of, of, of carbon per capita, highest carbon footprint per capita in the world, has the highest ecological footprint of any country in the world, like, you know, eight and a half planets worth a year, like whatever, I mean, it's massive. And most people don't know that. Like, if they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, and like, if you think about your wealth, so it's a cultural shift. Like everyone drives big SUVs and, and wants to drive the fancy Ferraris and all those other things. So that, that, you know, they've inherited this kind of status, you know, you know, way of thinking about it from, I think, I would imagine Western, I don't want to claim that. I, it's my, my observation, I think. Um, or a city skyline, that, like if you're building all these towers, look at us, we're a global city. And I'm like, wow, that's like the exact opposite. You're not going to attract people if you look like everywhere else. Like, look at the indigenous urbanism side of us. How do you like design your place to be so unique that you, people want to come here? Um, so there's a different dialogue we're having about that. That's, that's, and I've read the national vision of the country. I've read the national strategy. I've learned the origins. So I kind of frame it and connect it to like, it's not about me telling you guys how to do this. Like you, your knowledge is here. You know, it's not about me copy pasting some concept and slapping it down. It's starting from first principles of your culture, your knowledge, your people. Right, your values, your beliefs, and how that influences the DNA of how you change this, the trajectory of this country. Mm. And that's when they're like, oh, you know, how do we teach the kids that? How do we reinstate that? How do you, because it's already something I know is really important to them mm. you know, preservation of Arabic language, preservation of their cultural traditions. You know, there's already a real concern about how teenagers, like there's a massive diabetes, you know, issue here because of the diet and sedentary lifestyle, being in air-conditioned buildings all day and driving big cars everywhere, and like no one walking around. So there's, you know, it's, I just kind of, 
open up that door and, and look at, you know, help look at that system with them in a way that is valuable and relevant to what they're already wanting to try and do. So I just kind of put them from where they're thinking about it from here to like over here. And uh, it's working. It's been like this. So I would equate because of the training I had in Australia, they've embraced this stuff faster than anywhere else I've worked. Like it's already in like in the, in the, in my foundations, like, you know, sustainability framework, regenerative is in there. Indigenous is in there. Like they want to look at regenerative education, disruptive education and bring more of the indigenous knowledge of the people of this place into the curriculum of the schools and teach kids that and like, you know, decolonize the, the education really, system a bit. So it's, it's really interesting. Table. You refer to, um, you refer to it as your training in Australia. And I think that's, that's something that's standing out as a difference from most people who are offered that gift or given that gift of the learning that you had from the um, Gumbangim Bob there um, on their coast. Yeah. Because um, most people refer to that as an experience. You're referring yeah. to it as training. That's right. <laughs> you were given this training, <laughs> you know. So therefore, the, the implication of that is that you have a skill set and that you also have some kind of obligation, reciprocal obligation to use that in the world. With most people, there's that extractive relation with the Indigenous knowledge and uh, when they encounter it in community, uh, when we bring people in, you know, call them brother, um, share things. You know, they go away with this fabulous experience. Oh, and my skin name is Borgara or something, you know, and I have a skin name. I had the most amazing experience. It was really spiritual, <laughs> you know, and then they pretty much go back to what they were doing before. Um, so I think that's a big difference. Another difference I keep hearing, you, you keep using the term first principles, but you're not using it in the same, in the same way that I've been hearing it. Uh, particularly over the last year, like in the way I keep hearing it now is more that, you know, first principles, Clarice, read Marcus Aurelius, you know, it's that uh, sort of Stoics um, kind of Hannibal Lecter style of first principles. You know, it's, a, it's a, a lot of people who are really grasping at the foundations of Western knowledge at the moment. And um, so, you know, there are a lot of groups of thinkers who are doing first principles thinking you know, for each for thing, like what is it, what is it in and of itself? But um, you're going to first principles in terms, I think of thinking in terms of um, first people um, principles almost. Well, no, it's, 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 it's a term I use for me. So my first principle is that it's not a white male led thing, right? Like, like, it's like, I, I use that in a way, like I, I, I'll frame all this stuff. Like it's not about me coming in here and doing all this work for you. It's helping, you know, it's helping unlock the knowledge that's already here, right? And making sure all, this all is the worst people say that as well. All the worst yeah. people always say that when they come in. But you're you're actually yeah. living it, and um, yeah. you just must be exuding it or something. Well, I know I have a I know I have a profound responsibility from what I've been taught. I mean, Chels was really good at teaching me, like you know, guardianship of that knowledge, not just giving it away to people and like how people have misinterpreted or misapplied it. And, mm. um, so it's really important that, you know, that, that I have a responsibility 
you know, and how I how I've used that training and knowledge, um, and not for my own gain. Is that I always like talk about that with Chels, like even you know, had an interesting call yesterday or something that led to like, she's going to get the work. And I was like, boom, like, you, you know, this is more work for you guys. Like you gotta be, you gotta, this has to be an Aboriginal led thing. Um, what do you need for me? What do you need me? Call me up from here. That's all it is. <laughs> um, so that was good. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, I mean, I've only been here six months, so it's been still a journey, man. Yeah. It's still a long way to go. But I'm loving learning. Like, I love, you know, it's, it's been a tough transition for the wife and kids, but my, I'm coming at it like there's so much for me to learn about desert culture and practices. So, like, I'm just, like, you know, the museum library reading books or being introduced to these amazing architects who have that heritage vernacular of design and why, you know, certain design typologies have symbols and, like, you know, how they were able to survive in extreme heat in a way that the urban pattern was like, I'm just, I'm loving that. So I'm here learning from elders already, like, and finding some amazing people. And uh, so I get excited, but my kids aren't, you know, they're like, the my, they're, I love that they're the minority, man. They're like the only white dudes in their friend group, which is actually really cool as well. So, so they're, you know, whether they're, you know, they're learning differently, just being in the system here. Right, and learning another culture, language, picking up some stuff, um, traditions. So whatever, you know, however long we're here, it is influencing their worldview again, like again. So that's good. Mm. Different than Australia. They miss Australia. Like they loved Australia. Yeah. Well, they might, uh, they might marry in there. You never know. You never know, man. <laughs> so you're, uh, you're on lockdown now. Big COVID. Uh spikes there indonesian strain well, yeah, we, indonesian one south africa one all UK. so many mutations uh come uh, coming converging on that one place yeah i mean it's been a multicultural city i mean oman this region has always been like a trade port it's always been a cosmopolitan region when you go back hundreds and hundreds of years uh, there's a lot of fusion of cultures here like in the kids school there's 80 cultures so there's a lot of travels. It's like a it's like a, a central node for like you know between the east and the west of it. Mm. Um, the World Cup. There's a lot of international people flowing through and out because it's just, you know the world's largest events coming here in 17 months. So there's been um, some leaked you know cases that have you know spiked. We had about 200 cases a day or 150 a day stable for a while, and then it just went to like a thousand, and then there's one. It's also Ramadan. Right. So this uh, is also the month of fasting and iftar. So there's a lot of um, family meals and dinners. And I think they just put the rules down in place so people weren't traveling around and having big meals and just making sure that they put a bit of control over the situation. Yeah. And the numbers have come down. But a lot of people are vaccinated as well. I mean, they're, they've gotten a lot of people vaccinated. Mm. I heard it's made things difficult at Mecca too. Yeah, you know, that's that's been yeah. really problematic, you know. Yeah. Mm. Conflict between prayer and you know and and social distancing, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that big obligation of your life, like you know, you you got to go there at least once, and that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people, man. You know, it's um, yeah. it's something you can just put on hold indefinitely. So it's a tricky thing to manage that one. Yeah. Mm. 
So what what is your uh, you're probably sick of talking about it like everyone else, but your sort of systems thinking kind of lens um, when you have a look at uh, COVID. What, what do you see coming? Um, well, I mean, it's like when you know the bigger systems at play, it's just not like, like I've been like a weapon of mass distraction, right? Like it's really important because a lot of people are dying and in, in, in India I'm feeling for right now. Mm. We're such a short-sighted species, not all of us, but many in the world, you know, we don't have the cognitive foresight to look at the bigger systems issues that we're dealing with right there's the image of the waves right climate change biodiversity loss like COVID is this little wave the big waves are they've never stopped and never have been right like, mm. like i think we're, about when the global i just need to i just need to post a thing in there like we're we're short-sighted organisms we're not a yeah. short-sighted species because in our communities right. and and uh living the right way um where you know two heads are better than one uh, tends to work out a little differently eh? i like that that's a really good point mm. short-sighted organism yeah mm. i agree with that you're right yeah um thank you for so, teaching me that today that's no, she's right <laughs> sorry man keep going i just thought i knew i'd lose um, that if i uh, didn't bookmark it but you think about the you know the it's so much in the prefrontal. I love the neuroscience of all this stuff, right? Like trying to understand and unpack like why we are irrational or rational character, whatever we are in our economic theory. Mm. But like when the global financial crisis hit, you know, you think about like we had all this progress on climate change. You know, like Obama was coming in. There's all this momentum. There's going to be legislation passed, and then the global financial crisis hit, right? And this much more systemic, you know way bigger threat than pandemic is mm. like looming you know and, like, and all of a sudden that becomes like bottom of the list and jobs in the economy are number one right and brown jobs not green jobs you know it's like mm. the jobs that were shelves for like many years because they're bad for the environment it's like just get people back to work no matter what right and we continue to do that and like I'm, I'm hoping this one's a bit different because we you know we've had time to sit at home and reflect and be with family more and like think about you know the our lives and purpose and you're seeing a lot more time at home and and you know less just running around doing the rat race stuff but you've also visually seen how the earth has healed itself in the time that mother nature sent us to our room in this pandemic right so when i do my present i frame that like dolphins coming back into the venice canals or the air quality of beijing beijing cleaning up and like mm. The ocean started to heal itself just because humanity stopped, you know, moving around so much and the economic activity slowed down. The earth started to heal itself. And you mm -hmm. see this like super positive correlation between human economies and activity and planetary health. Um, so I'm hoping that's, you know, the whole build back better movement, for lack of a better term, that's out there um, really starts to. But, I mean, you're seeing this change in America, right? You know, Biden, you know, going huge on climate change and, you know, knock on wood, all that kind of really takes, you know, action comes out of that. There's action coming from here as well. And uh, I'm hoping that just as they continue to see the larger system, you know, mm. these pandemics, things will come and go. 
as they do in the history of, uh, of, our, of our species, but like, you, like the bigger system has to be tackled no matter what, like all the time, every day, like they can't take your eye off that. Mm. I think I'm hoping that this pandemic is, you know, some world leaders are really understanding that and some influential figures in the world are understanding that. So yeah. like no matter what, we're dealing with that bigger system. Well, the Australian government's doing its part. It's like yeah. going to be focusing on gas for a while now. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, because uh, there's no carbon in gas. So, you know, so... Uh, was the Q&A session this week, yeah, right? We're going to focus on gas and natural, natural gas. It's natural and um, no carbon. So, yeah, yeah. we're going to clean. Yeah, we're going to save, uh, save the world that way. From this end, we're gonna uh, frack the hell out of that for a for a good while. Yeah, that's really mad. <laughs> yeah. Really well, you know, and it's it's that what we were saying before. There's always these externalities, you know, with um, when you, when you're looking at interventions like that, you know, so they're they're sort of blithely ignoring the fact that um, you know natural gas in the atmosphere it actually um, fixes the methane up there and stops it from dispersing so it increases the half-life so you you methane methane stays up there for bloody decades <laughs> um and methane's worse than carbon <laughs> so it's, it's way uh, worse uh, you know, and i think it's between that and the planting two two trees for your sneakers just willy-nilly any old bit of ground any old tree it's um it's not going to get us there is it bros no no man that's why i think your book and, and the, what you're talking about how indigenous knowledge can save the world like i'm fully i really believe that i mean it's like rethinking culture family community governance economy yeah like all of it mm. like it's like we just need to like a lot of the world just needs to shut the fuck up and listen and learn basically where I've been at for a while. <laughs> um, you know, even when there's like a, you know, when there's, you guys had like some climate conference, like, I don't know if it was, it was after the bushfires. It was yeah. a bunch of white dudes being flown in from America to kind of tell the country to deal with the climate problem. And I was like, I got really pissed off. I'm like, where's your like Aboriginal leaders? Like, like mm. the reason there's a climate problem in Australia is because of, you know, 200 and, 30 years of uh, applied Western thinking on planning and, and governance of the land. It's like, well, look, I mean, you know, our, our knowledge keepers and really good thinkers are better. Look, we're just better and more committed to the kind of uh, communication that you experienced on Mbangu country, bros. Yeah. It's kind of that, you know, like we do have people who are, you know, our designated mouthpieces who they're, they're the ones who, who step up and speak at these things, you know, um, but it's not necessarily a good medium and, you know, and the knowledge they're carrying is not necessarily a good aggregate reflection of the, um, the knowledge in the community, you know, that actually passes on the messages and the knowledge that, um, that people need to know, you know, yeah. and a lot of it, you know, when we, when we do have people getting up and speaking, a lot of it is, um, the message that you know um you guys did this it, it's sort of that <laughs> clutching a bunch of IOUs, oh, yeah. you know 
It's yeah. like you guys did this to the world, you know, and so yeah. you, you should be ashamed of yourself, kind of thing. And um, which is, you know, you gotta you gotta do that. It's hard not to do that, you know. But, yeah. but when uh, often when that's 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 the main message, you know, or at best you get a message of people telling like you know, providing an experience at the conference of hearing old stories about how things used to be, um, you know, um, about, you know, hearing about a few different methods for hunting or manufacturing things that were sustainable, um, you know, in the economy that was here before. Um, you know, you hear these things and you have the indigenous experience and, um, and it's lovely. But it doesn't, um, nobody's sharing the systems, the processes, the logics, you know, the patterns. Um, nobody's sharing indigenous methods of inquiry. Um, you know, um, the processes for bringing a new species or technology or new anything, you know, into a place and how long mm. that takes and how, how much must be done you know, to make sure that you know everything about the origin story of that thing before it comes in, you know? Yeah, um, yeah that's, that's not what people are hearing from Indigenous people. So, you know, so they kind of stop inviting them to the conference, yeah. except for, you know, you know, they end up with a handful of favourites that they get because it's like, you know, oh, good, she's going to come and do that thing with the gum leaves. And you know we might yeah. get a little dance or something, and uh, you know that'll that'll so that'll be that'll be really cool. That'll uh, yeah. That'll, but I think Angie's I think Angie Abdullah and the and the network that she's working with is doing some pretty interesting stuff. Ah, uh, that's uh, the always always new. Calls, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm working with Angie on that. Um, uh, the indigenous protocols for AI um, lab there. That's what I think is really cool. Yes, yeah, so that's with the Goethe Institute and with um, I think it's ANU. We got Genevieve yeah. Bell, you know that um, you know she drops in from time to time and <laughs> helps us out. Talk here. Genevieve. Genevieve Bell. She's Genevieve? The, Genevieve Bell. She's the anthropologist. Been doing. She's worth looking up on YouTube. Go Genevieve Bell AI. She's got some cool stuff to say about it. That's um, awesome. Yeah, I think that works yeah. really exciting. So we've been trying yeah, to get talking up with a, a few indigenous people there, and um, you know we've been throwing together uh, a bit of a, you know, a test case kind of thing. Uh, idea I've been working on for a while. Um, I wrote an article for that last year that was in the Griffith Review, uh, looking at a different way to do um, agent-based modeling you know, from an indigenous perspective. And um, so, you know, a lot of the big, uh, I don't know, so some of the really, you know, the interesting, innovative ideas that have come out through that uh, incubator with um, Angie is um, th this idea of in-agent-based modeling, um, making sure that the land is an agent. <laughs> yeah. That you haven't just sure. got this landscape, you know, this static landscape with these... Um, you know, with these little software agents moving around on them and, uh, you know, growing in yeah. strength and wisdom, uh, but the land itself is agentic. And so it's, it's that it's trying to figure out how to do the, um, you know, how to have the law coming through the land, 
how to have that seasonal communication and everything happening from the landscape um, so that the land is an agent within that model. And I, I think that's the uh, that's going to be the key. We're also looking at um, uh, uh, translating an eight uh, eight part kinship system into an algorithm. Um, that's but that's that's on a hunch. I have a hunch that that will um, that that's something that could revolutionize genetic computing. But um, that be awesome. <laughs> that's exciting. That's exciting stuff. Nobody, nobody believes me yet. But um, yeah, it it is an amazing algorithm, and it um, you know, it's it it was designed over hundreds of thousands of years to um, to ensure that genetic vigor was maintained was able to be maintained in a small population, you know. So I think with your genetic computing, I think you'll, you'll see some pretty amazing and productive mutations occurring um, if you, uh, you know, get your kinship algorithm on brass. Yeah. So, um, yeah, she's doing, she's doing some great stuff, Angie. Love her work. She's very good at engaging people. And, um, you know, here's the sexy ideas and, and bringing people in. She manages to bring lots of people together. You know, that's a superpower, I think. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. I love her. Um, I actually jump into a big meeting in two minutes. Oh, so I have to jump. Yeah, we that's our hour <laughs> gone. Well, yeah. Really good to talk to you, Bruce. And uh to be continued, eh? Hey, yeah, it was yeah. Good, good job. Super good to connect with you, man. And yeah, yeah. um best of luck and just growing the uh, the movement that you're doing, man. It's awesome. Sweet, bro. All right. And we'll talk soon. Yep. Up. Uh, See you, buddy. Yeah.